the 30th of May, 1832, a gunshot was heard ringing out across the 13th arrondissement in Paris. A peasant who was walking to market that morning ran towards where the gunshot had come from. On the ground, he found a young man writhing in agony, clearly shot by a duelling wound. The young man's name was Everest Galois. He was a well-known revolutionary at the time. Galois was taken to the local hospital, the Cochin Hospital, where he died the next day in the arms of his brother Alfred. The last words he said to his brother were, don't cry for me, Alfred. I need all the courage I can muster to die at the age of 20. It's not clear what the duel was about that morning. Was it the establishment trying to get rid of this troublesome revolutionary? Was it a duel with a friend over love? Or was the whole thing staged in order to spark a new revolution? We'll never be too sure. But actually it wasn't revolutionary politics for which Galois was famous. A few years earlier, he'd made a great breakthrough on one of the big open problems in mathematics at the time. He'd written to the academicians in Paris trying to explain his theory, but they couldn't understand anything that he was talking about, partly because this is how he wrote most of his mathematics. The night before the duel, he realised this may be his last chance to explain his great breakthrough. So he stayed up all night writing away in letters to his friend his great ideas. As the dawn broke, he left this manuscript for his friend and went to meet his destiny. Perhaps the fact that he stayed up all night doing mathematics was the reason he was such a bad shot that morning. But those documents that he left, many of us regard as most important documents in the whole history of mathematics. Because contained inside them is the development of a new language called group theory, which helps us to understand one of the most fundamental concepts in nature, namely symmetry. My name's Marcus de Sotoy, and I'm a professor of mathematics here at the University of Oxford, and also the Charles Simonyi Professor for the Public Understanding of Science. In my research, I use this language that Galois developed every day. But actually, when I was young, I hadn't wanted to be a mathematician at all, like Galois. I'd wanted to be a spy. This had been fueled by my mother, who'd worked for the Foreign Office. When she'd left the Foreign Office, when she had children, uh, she told us that she'd been allowed to keep the black gun that every member of the Foreign Office gets given. I immediately jumped to the conclusion that she had been a spy. And she said this gun was hidden somewhere in the house. Me and my sister used to spend all our time trying to find this gun, but we could never find it. They clearly taught her the art of concealment very well as well. So I resolved to become a member of the Foreign Office, like my mother, and become a spy. So when I went up to secondary school, I thought the best way to join the Foreign Office was to learn lots of languages. So I signed up for every language my secondary school did. Uh, they did French, German, Latin. There was a course on the BBC at the time teaching Russian. I thought, well, that'll be great for a spy. So I got my French teacher to help me with the Russian. But as I started to learn these languages, I got more and more frustrated. There were all these strange spellings which didn't seem to make any sense kind of irregular verbs uh, that you just had to learn how they declined. The whole thing was very frustrating. But it was about that time that my mathematics teacher, in the middle of a lesson, suddenly said, De Sotoy, I want to see you after the class. I thought I was in trouble. At the end of the class, he took me round the back of the maths block. I thought, I'm really in trouble now. Um, but then he took out his break time cigar. He said that he wasn't allowed to smoke in the common room because the other teachers didn't like it. And he said to me, De Sotoy, I think you should find out what mathematics is really about. Because it's not really about the sort of long division and percentages that we're doing in the classroom. 
is something much more exciting. And he recommended a few books that he thought would open up this world of mathematics to me. That weekend, my dad and I went up to Oxford, the uh, local academic city to where I lived, uh, armed with that list of books that my teacher had given me. My dad had been told about a shop called Blackwell's, which he thought would be uh, good for looking for these books. Uh, but when we arrived, we were a little bit disappointed. It looked very small. Uh, but if you've ever been to Blackwell's, it's actually a little bit like Doctor Who's TARDIS. Uh, when you go in, it's enormous. It looks small on the outside, enormous on the inside. And we went down into the Norrington Room, uh, which is like this Aladdin's cave of science books. And my dad took this list of books and went off to try and find them. And I just wandered around, sort of pulling books off the mathematics shelves, looking inside. And it was extraordinary. It seemed to be this sort of coded language. I really didn't understand a word. But there were undergraduates leaning up against the shelves, uh, reading these maths books like they were novels. So when I went home, I was determined to see whether I could crack this coded language. I've still got a copy of one of the books we bought that morning in Blackwell's in Oxford. It costs uh, £1.75. Um, I defy you to find a book in uh, Blackwell's today which costs £1.75. Uh, the book was called The Language of Mathematics. I was very intrigued. I'd never thought of mathematics as a language. Um, here I was trying to learn all these languages at school, French, German, Latin, and becoming very frustrated because they were so illogical, all these strange, irregular verbs. But as I read this book, I began to understand that mathematics is a fantastic language, a language to help you to try and describe the world around us. It can help you to understand what's happened in the past, to be able to make predictions into the future. And this language, unlike the other languages I was learning, uh, it all made sense, it was totally logical. There were strange uh, twists and turns, surprises, but everything made perfect logical sense. And one of the languages that I really became intrigued in by, in this book, um, was this language that Galois had developed, the language of group theory, to help you to understand symmetry. And in fact, symmetry is a language that nature has been using ever since things have been trying to communicate with each other. Symmetry is a really important part of the evolutionary language. Symmetry marks out things which are important, things with meaning against the sort of background chaos of the world around us. If you're in the jungle and you see something with reflectional symmetry, it's likely to be an animal and you should take notice of it because either you could eat it or it might eat you. In the garden as well, for example, the bumblebee. The bumblebee has very bad vision. It can't judge distances. It sees the world in black and white. But what it can pick out are shapes with symmetry, because symmetry is likely to be something which will have sustenance, something which can feed it, something which will keep it going. So it's drawn to symmetry. Symmetry is almost like a billboard saying, come and visit me, I can sustain you. The flower as well actually needs the bee for its propagation. So uh, the more symmetrical a flower, the more likely it is to have bees coming and visiting it. So symmetry is almost like a language of communication between the bee and the flower. And research has been done which shows that the more symmetrical the flower, the sweeter the nectar inside the flower. Humans too, we use symmetry as a way of communicating. If I show you two faces, uh, one which has been made artificially symmetrical 
and I ask you to say uh, which one is more beautiful, then most people are drawn to the face with perfect symmetry. Why is that? Well, it's because this symmetry is actually communicating information about how good the genes of this person is. It's very hard to make symmetry. So the more symmetrical a face, the better your genes are, the better upbringing you've had, and therefore you're going to make a better mate in order to have children. So symmetry, again, is being used to communicate genetic information. I think this uh, power of mathematics and symmetry as a language is perfectly summed up by a quote by the great Galileo. He once said, the universe cannot be understood until you have learnt the language in which it is written. And it is written in mathematical language. And the letters are circles, triangles and other geometric figures, without which means it is humanly impossible to comprehend a single word. In the next video podcast, we're going to start our journey trying to understand the first symmetrical objects that humans started to play with.